All right, be seated. I uh, appreciated all of the worship so far, but I especially appreciated that fifth verse of, of uh, uh, There is a Fountain. That's the best one, and it's left out of all of the hymnals. I have no idea why. First time I heard it, I thought, well, this is perfect. It's a perfect way to end that hymn. Well, it's beautiful. Well, uh, greetings to you all, and I, uh, it's a joy to be with you, and I greet you not just from myself, uh, but it's always a, a joy when I travel to uh, extend greetings from my whole church. Uh, I always make sure that I have my people know where I'm going and say, I'm going to bring greetings from you, and, and greetings uh, like you find in the New Testament epistles. It's not just, uh, hey, they say, they say hi, or I guess, howdy, you know, whatever this is, Texas. Uh, but, you know, as in the New Testament epistles, Paul's epistles, it's a, it's a formal recognition of our bond together in faith in Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, uh, it's always a pleasure I've known uh, your pastor and his family. I think those are the only ones that I've, uh, I've maybe met before. Uh, and it's been a long time. I'm looking now and I feel old. <laughs> it hasn't been that long, actually. Uh, but a lot has happened. Um, but, uh, you know, I've never met uh, the vast majority of you. My people have never met you. And yet, uh, we rejoice that we are together in the bonds of Christ. And uh, as uh, we were talking last night, this is uh, like an outpost of heaven. This is an embassy of heaven where we're together with our true countrymen. And uh, here I can be you know, hundreds of miles away from home, and yet this is uh, my true home. So it is a delight to be with you, and I bring you greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ, in uh, Christ Reformed Baptist Church in, in Vista. Well, let's turn in our uh, copies of the Word of God, if you haven't already, to 2 Corinthians 3, and our text for this morning is verses 7 to 18. And I always forget to ask this when I preach in other churches, uh, do you pray before the sermon, after the sermon, both? Whatever I want to do. I always want to know the custom of the land in which I'm in. Uh, but all right, we'll, we'll before the sermon. Okay, absolutely. So let's read uh, the text of uh, this portion of God's word, and then uh, we will ask for his help, and then we'll consider it together. Second uh, Corinthians chapter three, verses seven to eighteen. This is uh, the very word of God to us, His people. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpasses it. For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, how much more will what is permanent have glory? Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all... With unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word now, remove the veil from our minds, remove the veil from our hearts. Help us to see the glory of the Lord revealed in your word, and through it be transformed into that same image. Father, help us to be not like uh, the blind man there in Bethsaida, who could see but not quite see clearly. (laughs) Uh, Help us to be like blind Bartimaeus a few chapters later, 
who sees clearly because he believes. Help us to receive your word by faith, in obedience, and be glorified in it, and transform your people through it. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, uh, the reason that I'm out here in, uh, in this area, of course, is that I was uh, speaking at the Semper Reformanda uh, conference, and that conference was on chapter 6 of our confession. And as I said a few times at the conference, it's not the most uplifting chapter in our confession. <laughs> chapter 6 is entitled, Of the Fall of Man, of Sin, and of the Punishment Thereof. Uh, so I've been speaking all weekend on, on sin. <laughs> uh, of course, we discussed Adam's fall uh, as our federal head, right? So that in his fall, we sinned all, as the old uh, primer used to put it. Uh, but of course, we, we talked about original sin that, that comes from that. And original sin has two parts. There is the original guilt of Adam's sin that is imputed to us. And we talked about the solution for that in this conference several times this week. The solution for the imputed guilt of Adam's sin is, is the imputed righteousness of Christ. It is justification. But there's another side of uh, original sin. There's the imputed guilt, but then there is the inherited corruption. right? That sinful nature that all men are born with that comes as an inheritance, as a result of Adam's fall as well. And of course, in justification, the guilt of Adam's sin is completely eradicated. But what of the corruption that we've inherited? And our confession in the last paragraph of that chapter says, this corruption does remain in those who are regenerated. So if the solution to the imputed guilt is justification, what's the solution to the inherited corruption? Well, that's sanctification. Ultimately, it's glorification, <laughs> but it is sanctification, right? That corruption that still remains in part in those who are regenerated, the solution to that is supposed to be sanctification. And so that's what I, I decided after this week about talking about sin and all the consequences of sin. Uh, we kind of left off with the, the inherited corruption, the remaining sin. And so I thought, well, on Sunday, I want to talk about sanctification. <laughs> Let's talk about how that remaining corruption is progressively uh, addressed by God, by his work, again, through the gospel in sanctification. And, and really, that's what I believe that our passage is about. Uh, it's about sanctification. And, and really, this is an unusual kind of sermon for me because I'm really going to be zeroing in on one verse. And, it, and through that, it's, it's this kind of a doctrinal sermon on, uh, on the, the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, many people spend a lot of time and effort trying to figure out what is the will of God for them. You know, what is the will of God? And by that, they generally mean things like, well, who am I going to marry? Or what career should I pursue? Or things like that. Well, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, what the will of God is for each and every one of us as Christians. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. <laughs> Above all else, if you ask, what is the will of God for me? You can say it's sanctification. That the bulk of our Christian life is to be spent pursuing sanctification, becoming progressively more and more righteous, more and more obedient, more and more ultimately, as this passage teaches us as the goal, conformed to the image of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And yet, even though this is so much of what constitutes the Christian life, pursuing sanctification, there's so much confusion about it nonetheless. Uh, people wonder, all right, well, how can I be sanctified? How can I grow in holiness? And of course, you go to any Christian bookstore, although there's fewer and fewer of those around, it seems like the shelves are filled with all of these uh, basically kind of quasi self-help books, you know, the, and they, they all have titles like the secret of, of, of sanctification or three keys to growing in holiness. You know, everyone claims to have discovered some missing tool, some missing means of sanctification. How can I do this? What's the, the best thing that I can do in order to become more sanctified? You know, can I really expect to make much progress in sanctification in this life or should I just give it up as a lost cause? 
Uh, am I completely on my own in this process? Or alternatively, am I completely passive? Or is it some combination? Is it all my work? Is it all God's work? Or is it 50-50? Or is it 70-30? Or maybe 99-1? What is this? Well, rarely, if ever, can a doctrine be fully understood just by one verse of Scripture. But with 2 Corinthians 3.18, I think we come pretty close on the doctrine of sanctification. Uh, Now, this verse, of course, like all verses, is in a context, and we'll look at that context. We can't understand it without that. But if there was ever one single verse that I would say captures the essence of sanctification, it is this. Most of the major aspects of this doctrine are covered here. You could say this is sanctification in a nutshell. Sanctification boiled down to uh, its essence. In this one verse, we're given the nature of sanctification, we're, we're told the agent of sanctification, and we are given the means of sanctification. For those of you who are note takers, that was my outline that I just gave you. <laughs> Very basic outline for this morning. But the nature of sanctification, what it is, the agent of sanctification, who carries it out, and the means of sanctification, uh, how it is that sanctification is worked within us. So let's now just look at this verse, let's dwell on it, let's see what it teaches us about sanctification, and I pray, pray that what follows will be, be edifying for us all as we continue to struggle with the remaining corruption of sin within us. So first up, as I said, the nature of sanctification. This verse actually teaches us two important things about the nature of sanctification. It teaches us that sanctification is transformative, and that sanctification is progressive. It's sancti- or it's a sanctification is transformative and it's progressive. It's transformative. Right? Paul tells us here, we all are being transformed. We're being transformed. Now, the Greek word behind this, and probably most of you know this already, is the, the Greek word from which we get the English word metamorphosis. Right, which conjures up all that poetic imagery of caterpillars turning into butterflies and all of that, which is a fair enough, uh, fair enough illustration. But, but metamorphosis, sanctification does involve a, a metamorphosis, a kind of transformation, some kind of real change within us. So it's transformative. Sanctification also here is progressive. Right? We all, as Paul says, are being transformed. Right? It's not we're just transformed once. No, we're being transformed. It's a process. It's a, a progressive thing. And, and that's further indicated when he says we're being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Right? That's uh, the ESV's way of translating the literal Greek from glory to glory. But that's really the idea. It's from one stage of glory to another stage of glory. From one degree of glory to another. The nature of sanctification, it's transformative, we're being transformed, and it's progressive. We are being transformed, and it's from one degree, one stage of of holiness, of glory, of conformity to the image of Christ to another. Transformative and progressive. And these are important things to know about sanctification. There are two aspects of the nature of sanctification that, that distinguish sanctification from, say, our justification. From our justification, and that's an important distinction to make. I'm sure your pastor has taught you about this in the past. Justification is not transformative, and we have to believe that. It it doesn't have anything to do with any change in us. Uh, Justification, you know, God declaring us righteous on the basis of Christ's righteousness, it's not transformative. It involves no actual change within us. God simply, in justification, declares us righteous in Christ, even though we are manifestly unrighteous in and of ourselves. Right? God doesn't first make us righteous and then declare us to be righteous. Now, what does Paul say in Romans 4? God justifies the ungodly. <laughs> he, he declares righteous those who are in and of themselves unrighteous. Right? God doesn't first make us righteous and declare us righteous. It's the other way around. God first declares us righteous in justification, and then he works within us to make us more and more righteous ourselves. 
justification is is forensic or it's legal, right? That's the the context of justification. It's God as judge slamming down that gavel and declaring us to be righteous even when in and of ourselves we are unrighteous. It's not transformative. Likewise, justification is not progressive. It's not. It is, as I said, it's a once and done kind of thing. God slams down that gavel, declares us righteous, and the matter is settled for all eternity. And praise God for that, <laughs> right? The verdict has already been reached. We're not awaiting some future justification at the final judgment that is somehow still in doubt. No, it's not progressive. It's instantaneous. When we come to faith in Jesus Christ, God declares us to be righteous on the basis of Christ's imputed righteousness. But again, sanctification, on the other hand, unlike this, it's transformative, and it is progressive. We are being transformed. And it's in precisely these ways that it's distinguished from justification. And again, we must always distinguish sanctification from justification. It's the confusion of the natures of justification and sanctification in exactly these ways that accounts for much of the error of Roman Catholic theology Right? In Roman Catholicism, your justification is always in question because you're only ever as justified as you are sanctified. And that's why there's absolutely no assurance in justification. But sadly, sanctification and justification in these ways are being confused by many who claim to be reformed even in these days. By those who adhere to new perspectives on Paul. Those who adhere to certain versions of the federal vision. Right? They confuse sanctification and justification. And that means your justification is never settled, right? Because your sanctification waxes and wanes. It, it increases, it decreases. And yet, again, it's not just these who are guilty sometimes of forgetting these aspects of the nature of sanctification. I think all of us can too, at least in practice. Uh, sanctification is transformative. It does involve a real, genuine, internal change. And that means that we should expect such a change in genuine believers. Christians should become more and more like Christ. Because again, that's what Paul tells us we're being transferred, transformed into, into the image of the glory of the Lord himself. That image of God, which was so horribly marred by the fall of Adam is exactly what's being restored in sanctification, especially the glory of God in Jesus Christ. There should be, then, distinguishable and increasing levels of practical holiness within the lives of all believers. Increasing and and observable levels of increase in, in, in obedience to God's commands. Sadly, again, there's too many practical antinomians out there you know, who claim to have come to faith in Jesus Christ to be justified, and yet, again, as James tells us, show me your faith by your works, right? Yes, justification and sanctification should always be distinguished, but they should never be absolutely separated. They can't be. If there is true justification, there will be, there must be genuine sanctification as evidence of that. If there's no distinguishable change, if there's no uh, transformation, then something is wrong. Something needs to be addressed. But at the same time, sanctification is progressive. And this is, I think, something that we all struggle with. Uh, Struggle for many reasons, but one is just we live in a, a culture of instant results, and increasingly so, right? We live in a culture of, of, of fast food, of instant streaming, of same-day delivery, all right? I was looking at something just this morning, and it said it could be at my house by this evening. <laughs> it's incredible, all right? We're used to these instant results. We, we want what we want, and we want it now. And if we have to wait, uh, well, that's just the end of the world for us these days. But sanctification isn't like that. Sanctification isn't heat and serve. It is something that is slow. It's a process. It is a a, a progress. It doesn't come all at once. 
nor should we expect it to, and nor should we demand it to in the lives of others. We all still struggle with sin. Again, that's what our confession says, chapter 6, paragraph 5. While in this life, there will never be anyone who reaches sinless perfectionism. But there should be, there ought to be this gradual, slow increase. Uh, There must, there will be transformation, but it happens gradually, slowly, and sometimes painfully slowly. (laughs) Painfully slowly. How many of us have not struggled with the slow progress of our sanctification? And there may be times of apparent retrogression. Um, Pastor Shiflett was telling me last night he's got a whole file of titles of books that he's never going to write. I have one of those as well, and it's it's Sanctification and the Stock Market. Um, I, I I like to use the illustration of the stock market sometimes to talk about sanctification, right? Because there's different models of sanctification out there. Some people think it should just be, you know, perfectly straight line from here to here. Some people think, you know, okay, you get saved and there's no growth and then there's some second experience of grace and you shoot up and then you increase from there. You know, sinless perfectionism is crazy. Um, you, you can see what I like to call the, 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 the Christian summer camp model which is basically flat line. It's like a heart monitor, flat line, and then you go to camping, make a decision, it shoots up and then drops, and then it shoots up and drops, and all of that, uh, you know, it just depends on that. You get these sudden bursts, but they're not sustainable. But no, sanctification, if you think about it, tracks much more like the stock market. It, it, has, it has ups and downs. You know, if you look at uh, just one period, one short period of a few days or a few weeks or the last two years, uh, you know, it just kind of looks like it's going down, and that can be very discouraging. But what do you do with the stock market? You take the long-term view, right? And you look at it over decades instead of days, and what do you see? You know, not a, not a consistent, but a, a discernible and gradual increase. But it's appreciable. It's, it's significant. Uh, if you don't like the stock market illustration, think of, think of children. Right, my wife and I have have three kids, and you know we see them every day, and from day to day we don't see any change, any growth in them. But their grandparents, who only see them every few months, when they see them, what what do grandparents always say? You've grown so much, right? And as we as parents, we just see it day to day. We don't. It doesn't may look like there's much change from day to day. But if you look over the long haul. Right? There's, there's, there's growth, and it's perceptible, and it's significant. Uh, so is sanctification. There is real, inevitable transformation. But that transformation occurs most frequently as a long, slow, but hopefully relatively steady process. And we all are being transformed from one degree of glory to another. Paul says we all, as Christians, this is true of all believers. Sanctification in its nature, it is transformative and it is progressive. But who actually accomplishes this transformation? Uh, Who actually drives this process forward? Who makes it work? Well, that brings us, secondly, from the nature of sanctification to the agent of sanctification. Naturally, we tend to think that we're the agent of sanctification, right? We're the ones doing the work. We're the ones putting in the time. We're doing this within ourselves. Like most Christians think that way, or they're even taught to think that way. It's all up to you. Uh, All up to your own discipline, all up to your own willpower to affect your own sanctification, your own transformation into the image of Christ. But that's not what Paul tells us here in verse 18, is it? He doesn't say we are transforming ourselves into that image. He says we are being transformed. (laughs) He uses what's called the passive voice. We're not transforming ourselves. We are being transformed. And the question is, well, well, we're being transformed by whom? Well, we could guess easily enough, but we don't have to. Paul tells us explicitly at the end of the verse for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, right? A good indication of the Spirit's personality and deity there. From the Lord, 
from God, and specifically the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Uh, This is one of Paul's main points, actually, in this passage as a whole. He's talking about, as we read, he's talking about the difference between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, the Law, versus the New Covenant in Christ and the Gospel. And he says one of the, the key differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old Covenant was a covenant of works, right? Meaning that it was something the people had to do themselves or try to do themselves, right? They were, the people were the ones who were to work and obey God's law for themselves and by themselves in order to merit God's blessing. And the inevitable outcome of that kind of arrangement is what? Failure. Right? Even Adam couldn't do it, much less us who are now sinful in Adam. Right? A, a, a conditional covenant made with sinful people is a broken covenant, always and forever. There's no way that they could ever have even transformed themselves. Because how do you transform yourself? How do you change your own nature? It's impossible. And so the inevitable outcome of that kind of arrangement, a covenant of works, the old covenant, was clear. Paul calls it here what? It's a ministry of death. It's a ministry of condemnation. Right? Because that's the only thing that a covenant of works can produce with sinful people. Condemnation, because you're going to break it. And then the result of that, death. But the new covenant, what does he call it in this, in this chapter? He calls it the ministry of of the Spirit, ministry of the Spirit. And one of the best things about the new covenant is that the new covenant, those who are in the new covenant, have the Spirit of God, have the Lord who is the Spirit to do in and for them what they could never have done by themselves under the law, under the old covenant. In no uncertain terms, Paul tells us the agent of our sanctification the one by whose power alone our sanctification is effected is the third person of the Holy Trinity, the Lord who is the Spirit. So what does this mean for us then? Does this mean we have no part in this process of sanctification? Right, We can just sit back, kick up our heels, just wait for God to sanctify us. Do we not preach the commands of Scripture and require obedience to them in believers? No, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And if you abuse this doctrine to that end, to to justify your own laziness, then that is entirely on you. Uh, It's an abuse of grace to think this. No, just because sanctification is the work of the Spirit does not mean that we don't have any responsibilities in it. This idea, again, really deserves more attention we can give it to this morning. But suffice it to say that while sanctification is entirely a work of the Holy Spirit, it is a work that the Holy Spirit has chosen to accomplish through the use of means. <laughs> through the use of means. Right? This is uh, just always the doctrine of, of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. Yes, Uh, God is sovereign over all. He alone can accomplish things, but he chooses to work through means. Means that we ourselves are given and encouraged to use. Not just encouraged, but commanded to use. Accomplishes through means. Now, we'll look at those means in a moment. As I said, that's uh, that's our third point this morning. But here we, we must remember that sanctification is something that we as Christians are commanded over and over again in Scripture to work towards. And the language in scripture is that of work. It's that of, of hard, focused labor. Right? We are to strive for holiness. That's the language of scripture. We are to spare no effort in our fight against our remaining sin. Right? It's a language of, of hard work, of, of fight. It's a language of battle. Right? This is uh, it's strong language that we are always given. Now, we tend to see a tension between these two truths, right? That the Spirit is the one who accomplishes our sanctification. And then on the other hand, though, that we ourselves are commanded to work toward our sanctification. You know, just as we see a tension between the related concepts of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. But the scriptures don't see a tension in that anywhere. 
In fact, they see these two truths of the fact that script, the, the Spirit is the one who accomplishes sanctification, yet believers are commanded to work toward their sanctification. The scriptures see those two truths as in perfect harmony with each other. The classic verses that get to this idea are Philippians 2, 12 to 13. Philippians 2, 12 to 13 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence. Right? He's talking about their obedience to his commands, but his commands because he's an apostle of Jesus Christ, ultimately to Christ's commands. What does he say to the Philippians? Work out your own salvation uh, with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul here is saying the entire process of sanctification from beginning to end, from both the desire for holiness in the first part, the will, to the actual carrying out of the work, the work, it's, it's, it's God who's at work within you doing that, giving you both the will and the ability to work for your sanctification, working out your salvation. And yet, what does he command them? Work out your own salvation. <laughs> now, he, he doesn't say, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, no less, right? This is a solemn responsibility that in the fear of God, we as Christians ought to be pursuing, right, with diligence. But he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling in spite of the fact that it's God who's working in you both to will and to of his good pleasure. <laughs> he says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling precisely because it is God who is at work within you, both to will and to do with his good pleasure. Right? There's no contrast, there's no tension between those truths, much less a contradiction. He's saying they're in perfect harmony with each other. Why should you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? It's because God is the one who is working in you, both to will and do of his good pleasure. This truth that the Spirit is the true agent of our sanctification, so far from discouraging us from striving for sanctification ourselves, Rather, Paul presents it here as the only true basis from which we can strive for our sanctification ourselves. Because, think about it, if our sanctification depended entirely upon our own strength, our own willpower, what would happen? We'd get so discouraged, we'd get so frustrated that we would very soon give it up. Right? As, a, as a lost cause, there's no hope. There's no progress being made, and I know that I'm too weak to make any of this progress. But because we know that the Spirit is with us, that God is at work within us by his Holy Spirit, because of that, then we can truly strive for our own sancti- for our sanctification, and we can strive with confidence. Right? Confidence, not in ourselves, but in the Spirit. Right, The Spirit is with us, and with him, all of the infinite power of the Godhead himself. Right, We can strive with confidence without that crippling discouragement that so many feel. Precisely because the Spirit is the true agent of sanctification, we then can strive for our sanctification in dependence, but also in confidence. Right, We strive dependently, knowing that our striving will only ever be effective if the power of the Spirit makes it to be effective. But we also strive confidently, dependently and confidently, knowing that the power of the Spirit will be effective for our sanctification. He is the agent. He is the agent of our sanctification. But as I said, he works through means. Right? He does it, but he works through means. So, What are those means of sanctification that we mentioned? Thirdly and finally, and this is really what I would like to emphasize this morning. Don't get excited by the fact that I just said finally. (laughs) Normally, I'm the other way around. Normally, my first point is really long, and then my my second point is kind of mid, and then my last point is really short. Uh, We're doing the opposite today, so just fair warning. The means of sanctification. What are those things that we should be using, right, because the Spirit uses them to grow us in sanctification. Uh, what are the things the Spirit uses to transform us progressively back into the image of God? Well, Paul tells us here that this sanctification takes place, again, we're just in verse 18, 
It takes place how? It says it takes place as we behold the glory of the Lord. Right? This is a causal phrase. It says we beholding the glory of the Lord. As we behold the glory of the Lord, then we are being transformed into that same image. Beholding the glory of the Lord. What does that mean? Now, here's where, yeah, if you pick up a book at your local Christian bookstore uh, on something like this, it's where many preachers, many Christian authors get all mystical and mysterious. Beholding the glory of the Lord. Uh, they speak of this, you know, as though it's some new form of the medieval beatific vision, right? Uh, where the monks would just deprive themselves of everything and then get a glimpse of, you know, the glory of, of God. Or like some kind of Christian Buddhism, right? If you, if you just clear your mind, you focus really hard on that flannel graph image of Jesus that you saw in Sunday school, and, uh, and eventually, you know, you get some glimpse at the glory. I would not encourage you to do that. <laughs> Shouldn't even mentioned it. Wipe it out of your head. Uh, you know, get a glimpse of his true glory somehow mystically, mysteriously, so that the, the, the beauty of that experience will, will change you forever. Right? Is it something like this? No, there's, there's nothing, nothing mystical about it. Now, again, there's something divine about it. It's the work of God, but there's nothing mystical, mysterious about it, at least not for Paul. No, Paul means something very concrete here. How do you behold the glory of the Lord? Well, he goes on to tell us in the following verses. And here's one of those places where the division of chapters can be kind of unhelpful. <laughs> but what does this mean? Well, read the next six verses, chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. And as I read this, Look at all the, the same imagery and the same language that, that follows on from the end of chapter 3. Paul says, therefore, having this ministry, right, the ministry of the Spirit, of the new covenant, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. But by the open statement of the truth, We would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, right? he's still talking about the veiling. We need to talk about that in a moment. He says, if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their mind, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Glory of Christ, the glory of God. And how is that seen? For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So how is the the glory of God in Jesus Christ, how can we see that? Where can we behold that? What does Paul say? It's, It's in the word of God, and especially in the clear proclamation of the word of God. It's in the preaching of the gospel. You know, we all beholding the glory of the Lord. And then what does he say? Where do you behold the glory of Christ? The glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's in the preaching of the gospel. Preaching. That's what we believe, isn't it? It's what we confess. The public ministry of the word is the primary means of grace, which is reinforced and held out to our other senses by the sacraments, by baptism and by the Lord's Supper. This is where Paul says we, we, we can behold the glory of the Lord. In the preaching of the gospel, in the ministry of, of word and sacrament, And then certainly as we meditate upon the word throughout our our week, we think about the gospel and and preach it to ourselves every day. The preaching of the gospel, the ministry of the word, it's not just the primary means of our salvation, our justification. It's the primary means of our sanctification as well. The preaching of the word of God, that is where the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is seen and seen most clearly. Nothing mystical, it's nothing mysterious. It's what we're doing right now. It's what you do every Lord's Day. And again, I, I always love, we, we have the Lord's Supper weekly as well, because then I can just point down to it. It's always right there. And I always love it too, because 
God forbid if there's not enough gospel in the sermon, at least you get the gospel here. And, and it's always, you, you remember, you're going toward the Lord's Supper. You've got to have the gospel. You've got to have Christ. This is where the glory of the Lord is beheld. This is the means of sanctification. The preaching of the gospel, the reinforcement of the gospel through the other means of grace as well. And yet, it's amazing how often Christians turn away from the gospel and turn back to the law in seeking their sanctification. It's as if we're saved by grace, but then we're sanctified by the law. (laughs) Uh, We're justified by faith, we're sanctified by works, works alone. But one of Paul's overall points in this passage is, is precisely that the new covenant, the gospel, has succeeded in accomplishing what the old covenant, what the law, failed so miserably to do. Namely, to produce this transformation back into the image of God. Both in initial justification, the law failed to do that, of course, it couldn't, through the weakness of the flesh, but also to produce the ongoing sanctification that flows from that justification. The law could not do it. The law by itself still cannot do it, apart from the gospel. In the broader context of verse 18, uh, Paul's arguing, again, the new covenant is so much better than the old covenant. It's so much more glorious than the old covenant. And he drives home this point with a, a... Fascinating illustration drawn from the Old Testament and from the Old Testament law, no less, about the glory of Moses' face. Right? We read that, and hopefully you remember back in the Old Testament uh, what that is. We're familiar with it. Let's refresh our memories, though. Let's turn back to Exodus chapter 3. It was Exodus chapter 34, sorry. Exodus 34. Uh, Exodus 34, here we are. We're actually here right at the very beginning of the Old Covenant, right? This is, this is Moses right after God has brought his people out from Egypt. He has uh, brought them to Mount Sinai, and God is at the top of Mount Sinai and, uh, you know, appearing in, in terrifying glory at the top of Mount Sinai. Moses has gone up onto the top of the mountain, right? The people say, Okay, you go talk with God. We can't even hear his voice or we're going to be, we're going to be dead. So you go talk with him. We don't want to hear anymore. Because uh, they knew they were sinful. They were right in that. <laughs> and so they say, you, and so Moses goes up to, to meet God, to speak with God directly on the top of Mount Sinai. The covenant has just been made. The old covenant has just been made. And it's actually, they're still receiving all of the laws of the old covenant. And then we read this somewhat bizarre passage at the end of (laughs) Exodus 34, beginning in verse 29. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, as uh, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses, and behold, the skin of his face shone And they were afraid to come near him, but Moses called them to him, and Aaron and all the leaders of the congregation returned to him, and Moses talked with them. Afterward, all of the people of Israel came near, and he commanded them all that the Lord had spoken with him in Mount Sinai. And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put a veil over his face. Whenever Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining, and Moses would put the veil over his face again until he went in to speak with him, with God. This is kind of a a weird story as you're reading through it. Uh, if you've ever seen, I can't remember which artist, it was Michelangelo or something, who, who, who carved a, a, a sculpture of Moses and he's got horns. Uh, that actually comes from a mistranslation of this passage in Latin, where instead of shining, it said it had, he had horns. <laughs> it's, it's weird. So that's where that came from. It should be rays of light you know, shining off of his face, but that'd be harder to carve probably. Uh, but it's, it's kind of an odd story. But Moses had been speaking directly to God. He'd been in the very presence of God. In in, in a sense, we could say he had been beholding the glory of the Lord. 
right? And, and what happened to him as a result? He had been transformed into that same image. He had begun reflecting in his own face the glory of the Lord that he had just been beholding. Right? So you can see how, how this is relating to our passage. And as Moses would, would go back into the presence of God in the tabernacle to receive more laws, his face would kind of get recharged, right? And then, and then he, would, he, he would take the veil off, he would speak with God, and then his face would be shining all brightly once again. But the key question here, the question that Paul picks up on in, in 2 Corinthians 3 is this, why did Moses put a veil over his face? Why did Moses put a veil over his face? Now, on a surface reading, and probably what, if you're anything like me, what I thought for years was, well, the people were afraid of him, right? And they ran away from him, and so he covered his face so that the people wouldn't be scared, and then he could talk with them. But that's not what the text says, is it? What does the text say? It says that uh, he would come and he would speak with the people, and we're told explicitly in verse 33 And when Moses had finished speaking with them, he put the veil over his face. He did it after he would speak with them. And then the same thing happened. Uh, It was his habit, verses 34 and 35. When Moses went in before the Lord to speak with him, he would remove the veil until he came out. And when he came out and told the people of Israel what he was commanded, the people of Israel would see the face of Moses, that the skin of Moses' face was shining. So it's not veiled. And Moses then would put the veil over his face again after he had given God's commands to the people until he went in again to speak with God when he would remove the veil and his face again would get kind of recharged with the reflection of the glory of God. Uh, So why did he cover his face? Why would he cover his face? It's not because the people were afraid. He did it for another reason. A reason that, again, turn back to 2 Corinthians 3, Paul tells us. Verses 12 and 13. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold, not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. Now, whatever Moses' reason for veiling his face, Paul tells us here it was because he was not being bold. (laughs) It seems kind of strange to us. Moses, he was being timid. And what was he being timid about? Well, it says he didn't want the Israelites to see something. What did he want them to see? He didn't want them to gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. In other words... Moses would veil his face because the glory of God, the glory of God in his transformed face would begin to fade. It was was being brought to an end. It's not that he didn't want the people of Israel to see the glory. He actually wanted them not to see that the glory would fade until he went back in and he got recharged with the glory of God and then for a while would, would be transformed again. And what does Paul make of all this? Well, he sees this whole affair as a very apt illustration of one of the key differences between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. And the key differences between the law and the gospel. And this difference is this. The transformation accomplished by the Old Covenant, by the law, was temporary and would quickly fade Whereas the transformation accomplished by the new covenant, the gospel, is permanent and only increases. It's the exact opposite. The, 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 The transformation accomplished by the law is temporary and it fades. Whereas the transformation, the sanctification accomplished in the new covenant and the gospel is permanent and it only increases. This is exactly, again, what he says in verses 7 and 8. Now, if the ministry of death carved in letters on stone came, and that's what Moses had with him, right? When he came down first time, he had the the, the law carved on stone. It says, if that, that came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face because of its glory, which was being brought to an end, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? 
And why? Because it will never come to an end. It will never fade. He says this in verse 11, For if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. Right? It's, it's the difference between what's temporary, what's passing away, and what is permanent, what is lasting. Why is the new covenant so much more glorious than the old covenant? Because the transformation brought about by the old was temporary, was being brought to an end, but the transformation brought by the new is permanent. And it's increasing. It's from one degree of glory to another, not from one degree of glory to less glory. And if this is the case, that's the difference between the transformation brought by the law versus that brought by the gospel. Why are we as Christians so tempted to go back to the law as our source of sanctification? Because again, so many do. Saved by, by grace, sanctified by the law. <laughs> Saved by the gospel, sanctified by the law. Why are we so tempted? Well, I think, again, it's, it's partially because of what we said earlier about our culture being so obsessed with immediate results. The law can give immediate results. Right? It, it, we said sanctification, God, it's progressive, it's slow, sometimes painfully slow. The law can give immediate results. Uh, some of you who maybe used to be part of legalistic churches know this. Right? It can give immediate results. You can beat people up with the law on Sunday, give them a thorough enough guilt trip that they might be able to do better for n- the next couple of days. Again, it's kind of that beep, beep. <laughs> beat them up with the law, but, but what is that? There's, there's maybe an immediate kind of visible result, but, but it doesn't last. It fades. And then you've got to do it again the next week. You've got to do it again the next summer, whatever that is. That, but that's the problem. <laughs> the transformation might be immediate, it might be visible, but it doesn't last. The transformation by the law may be immediate and visible, but it's temporary. Because the law by itself only produces guilt. And guilt is a terrible motivator. In fact, guilt ultimately is a demotivator because you'll eventually just get frustrated, you'll get fed up, you'll get resentful of the thing that is causing you the guilt, and you'll walk away from it. Uh, It's like the scene in Pilgrim's Progress, if you remember, when Faithful is laboring up the hill difficulty, and as he's going, he stumbles, right? So it means in in a time of trial, Faithful, you know, he, he, he falls, he sins. And then what happens? Do you remember this? Maybe you haven't read Pilgrim's Progress for a while. Moses appears out of nowhere and he comes and just beats him down to the ground. (laughs) And then Faithful gets up and he tries to keep going and Moses comes and beats him down to the ground again and again and again. And this just happens. That's what the law does. It just beats us down. We can't make that progress. And that sadly is what so many churches and so many believers experience week by week. You go in and you just get beat up by the law. You know, I have family members who attend such churches, and when we visit them, and I go, it, it, my, my wife and I would go, and it was a ways away, and typically we'd, we'd, we'd go to church in the morning, and then we'd drive home, you know, the rest of the day, and, and we'd go to church in the morning, and then as soon as we got in the car, I was like, let's, let's find a sermon or something to listen to. Like, I just, I'm beat up. I need the gospel because there's nothing. It's just the law. It's just guilt trip, and that is so demotivating. Again, it might produce immediate visible results, but they are not lasting. Problem with the old covenant, with the law, as Paul points out here, is that it doesn't come with either the power or the motivation to keep it. It doesn't come with the motivation, right, guilt, but it doesn't come with the power. What's the power to keep the law? It's what we get in the new covenant, the ministry of the Spirit. In other words, the new covenant comes with the batteries included. It comes with the power. You remember as kids how horrible that was when you'd get some new toy you've been waiting for, and then you pull it out of the box, and then you realize it needs batteries, and you start looking around. There's no batteries. <laughs> it's, it's worthless. right? But the gospel, the new covenant, comes with the batteries included. It comes with the power to actually keep it and to keep the law as the law itself could never do. And... It gives us a motivation for sanctification that's far more effective than the law. Instead of guilt, what is the motivation in the gospel? It's gratitude. (laughs) It's love. And that is the only motivation powerful enough 
Not that we don't need the law or the exhortations of the law anymore, but what we need more than just the law is we need the gospel. And we need the the gratitude to motivate our sanctification. And we need the power of the Spirit to enable our sanctification. That's the means of sanctification. It's the gospel. Beholding the glory of the Lord by doing exactly what we're doing right now. Because the glory of the Lord is revealed to us primarily in the word. And uh, New Testament and Old Testament, right? And that's the point that Paul makes in verses 14 and following. He's talking about the Jews. He says, their minds were hardened for to this day when they read the Old Covenant, that same veil remains unlifted. They can't see the glory of the Lord in Moses, in the law, in the Old Covenant. Because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. The veil is removed and we can behold the glory of the Lord, even in the Old Covenant, even in Esther. It's it's amazing. Uh, It was so edifying this morning. It's Christ all over the book of Esther. The book of Esther doesn't even mention God. And yet, once that veil is removed, there's Christ all over the place. And then we can see the glory of the Lord there. And what happens? We're transformed into the same image through the, the word of God and especially the preaching of the word of God, the preaching of the gospel and in the visible, tangible representations of the gospel and baptism in the Lord's Supper. These are the things that God has given us in this age to help us behold his glory, the ordinary means of grace. So much of, of, of the counseling that I do, you know, someone's struggling with a particular sin and they want to know, what can I do to overcome this sin? Everyone wants a silver bullet. Again, we're a, we're a, we're a, a culture of instant results. And people are, well, my people hopefully understand this by now, but so many are just so disappointed when you say, the means of grace. <laughs> the public means of grace, primarily, you know, are you here on Sunday? Are you hearing the word of God? Are you listening closely to the word of God? Right? Not just passively, right? We have to use these means regularly, faithfully, but also diligently. As Christ said, the measure you use, it will same will be measured back to you. And he says that in the context in Mark chapter 4, which you probably just read a few weeks ago. That's in the context of be careful how you hear. Right? In the, in the context of the parable of the sower. Be careful how you hear because with the measure you use, the same will be measured back to you. Use the word of God. Use the, the means of the preaching of the word of God diligently and God will bless it to you for your transformation, your sanctification. As you partake of the, the Lord's Supper, don't just let your mind wander. I tell our people that those, those moments when the elements of the Lord's Supper are being distributed, that's not dead time. That should be some of the, the richest time of your week where you're meditating on the word of God that was just preached. You're meditating on what these elements represent to you. What are you doing? You're beholding the glory of the Lord. You're beholding Christ. You're beholding the gospel. These are the methods that God has chosen to use to work within us. Yes, they might not seem as exciting as all the other methods out there, right? They, they might not seem to, to work instantaneously. But again, just like with the stock market, to go back there, those sharp gains typically aren't sustainable and they drop. And so with us, those immediate visible results, they're not lasting. It's that slow, steady progress, intermittent sometimes. But over the long haul, as you faithfully use the means of grace, you can look back and say, wow, here's where I started. This is where the Spirit of the Lord has taken me. And praise God that it is he who is the power for it. They're the only means God has promised to use for our sanctification, and so the only means that will be truly effective in the long run. The only means that will produce the steady, permanent transformation into his image from one degree of glory to another, to another, to another. The results of all other man-made workspace means will fade like the shining of the face of Moses, the mediator of the old covenant. If we want true and lasting transformation, we must constantly be beholding the glory of the Lord, the mediator of the new and better covenant in his gospel by means of the word and sacrament. 
bathing it all in humble, fervent prayer that the Spirit will bless his appointed means for our sanctification. It's simply as we gaze at his glory through the means that we begin to reflect his glory. And it's only when we see his glory perfectly that we will reflect his glory perfectly. For as we're told in 1 John 3, 2, but we know that when he appears, we will be like him. And why? Because we will see him finally as he is. Not as through a mirror darkly as we see now, but then face to face and forever. This is the doctrine of sanctification in a nutshell. <laughs> it's nature is transformative and progressive. It's a slow but steady pro- progress process of transformation back into the image of the glory of God that we were created to reflect. The agent of sanctification is the Holy Spirit upon whose power we must entirely depend. As we strive, for strive we must, but strive confidently in his power for ever greater sanctification. And the means of our sanctification are the ordinary means of grace, the word and the sacrament bathed by, uh, bathed in, in prayer by which we behold our Savior's glory in which God has promised to bless by his spirit for our sanctification. May God use these means and help us to use these means regularly and diligently and through them transform us into the image of Christ from one degree of glory to another. Amen.